Good to see you all this evening. Uh, I know we've got a bit of a smaller group than we uh, normally would have, uh, so I think we'll do things just a tad bit differently, uh, which I think will actually be even better for me. Uh, I found out that I was going to be preaching today, uh, two days ago, so did not have a whole lot of time to prepare, but had sufficient time to study the passage we're going to look at tonight and Elijah's life as a whole. Um, and so just want to invite you guys to kind of interact with me a little bit as I go through this passage tonight. If you've got a question or something, feel free to raise your hand. Uh, I may finish the point I'm making and then call on you, um, but I'd love to take the opportunity, since we've got such a small group, to answer any questions you might have, uh, and maybe we can interact like that. Uh, so tonight is going to begin a two-part study of Elijah's life. Uh, Elijah's account, uh, the account of his life, spans from chapter 17 in the book of First Kings, uh, really uh, with parts of it, into the first bit of Second Kings, uh, but primarily these a uh, couple chapters here, 17, 18, and 19, and we're going to focus our time in chapter 18 tonight. Uh, so what sorts of things do you guys typically think of when you think of Elijah? What comes to mind? Uh, most people have heard of him, even if they don't have knowledge of the Bible, and I know that all of us do here. So what are some things you think about when you hear of Elijah? Yeah, yeah, so he confronted the... Baal prophets, and that's exactly what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, what are some other things? Sorry, I heard some prophet, prophet. So he's a great prophet, right? Um, and in fact, a prophet that the rest of the Bible uh, takes up and kind of, uh, he's a prophet that uh, other prophets are modeled after and so when John the Baptist comes on the scene, they say that Jesus says he is the Elijah who was to come, right? Uh, so yeah, he's a great prophet. Uh, what else? <laughs> yeah, we mix him up with Elisha, his successor, right? <laughs> yeah, so Elijah and Elisha, both these great men of God, great prophets used of God mightily. Uh, many, many stories that we would think about with them. Uh, but just want to start with seven reasons that people typically think, you know, Elijah, he's a lot different than I am. Uh, you know, he's this great prophet of God. He does all these great miraculous things, or rather God does them in response to his prayers and through him. Uh, and people typically hear about Elijah, and the first thing they think is not, oh, yeah, he's a man like us. Uh, that's just not our first thought when we hear of this, uh, these mighty works of God through this man. So Cameron's going to put up seven things on the board that Elijah has done. Uh, the first one, if you want to look at 1 Kings 17, it's where a lot of these are, is Elijah predict, predicts a drought. Uh, this drought is going to last for uh, three years or more. Uh, so I don't know about you, but the last time I predicted something and it actually came to pass was uh, never. Um, so, so, <laughs> so I'm a little bit different there, right? And I'm sure most of you are as well. <laughs> uh, secondly, the ravens uh, brought him his food every day, brought him his breakfast and his dinner. Uh, 
last time I checked, I have to go to the grocery store. So, uh, again, uh, not matching up there either. Uh, and so both those things you can find in the verse six verses of chapter 17. Uh, then we move on to number three. Elijah prophesied that a dying widow's meager food supply wouldn't be spent if she used it on him. Uh, so there's this widow that has very little. She's got a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour. Uh, hardly enough, I believe, to make a cake. And uh, she is distressed. Her and her only child are about to die of starvation because of the drought, and they have no way to provide for themselves. And Elijah comes on the scene, and he's like, uh, hey, why don't you bake me a cake? And she's just kind of like... Um, I'm gathering some sticks so I can cook these for me and my son, and we can just go ahead and die in peace. So what do you want with me? And Elijah says, okay, well, don't fret. I I promise you, if you will do this, the Lord is going to provide. And so uh, the Lord ends up making this little bit of flour and oil uh, last them week after week after week for all three of them to eat and be filled. Uh, And that should evoke some things that, Jesus does later in the Gospels for us when we hear stories like that. Uh, But once again, uh, I have never witnessed food just continue to be there after I've eaten it. And so I don't think we can match up there either. Uh, How about number four? God listened to Elijah's prayer and raised the widow's son from the dead. Uh, So this widow he was staying with saw this miraculous provision of food for them and then the widow's son dies all of a sudden, and she's like, Elijah, did you come here just to pronounce judgment on me and make me watch my son die? Uh, and so Elijah's distressed and like, what's happening? <laughs> and he takes the kid upstairs, and he prays over him and prays to the Lord to restore his life, and God does it. Uh, so once again, I don't know about you, but the last time I saw somebody raised from the dead... Uh, was never. And (laughs) so, again, we do not match up. Elijah put on a competition with the prophets of Baal, like we said earlier, and as he prayed, God sent fire down from heaven, which is what we're going to talk about tonight, so I won't spend much time there. Uh, Then after that, shortly after, he bows in prayer, and God makes it rain again after it has not rained for three and a half years or so. Uh, And then we see this uh, funny story at the end of chapter 18 where... uh, I mean, Elijah was just an athlete. Uh, he outran chariots and horses of the king. Uh, and so we'll talk a little bit about that at the very end tonight as well. Uh, all those things uh, come to mind when we think of Elijah, and uh, it's hard to really compare ourselves and say, yeah, that's a guy just like me. Um, that's not our first thought. But I want to give you guys three reasons uh, that James actually says Elijah's a man just like you and me. So if you want to flip to James 5, uh, there's three verses here that I'm going to read real quick. And uh, don't feel bad if you can't get there before I'm done reading them because it's real short. (laughs) James says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So we've already talked about this drought that happened three years, right? Three years and six months, according to James. 
and Elijah prays, and uh, the drought happens, and then Elijah prays again, and the drought ends. Uh, so why did I point you to these three verses to say that, well, Elijah is just like us? Well, first of all, James explicitly says it. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, that means that he is a human being. He's no different than you and I. Uh, he has nothing different physically, spiritually. Uh, he is made up the same way that you and I are. Um, and so he's a human being just like we are with a nature like ours. Uh, so we can identify with him there. Uh, number two, says, James says that he prayed fervently. Um, and so what we can see here is that Elijah, this great prophet of God, he prays to the same God that you and I do every night. Uh, so he prays to the same person, uh, and the same person that responds to him responds to us. And so we pray to the same God that Elijah prayed to. Uh, number three, James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Um, I don't know about you, but I've heard that, that verse many times and not had a clue what it meant, uh, so I decided to dive in a little bit and see what that actually means, uh, and uh, it all comes down to the word righteous, right? So how are we made righteous with God? Uh, that's not a rhetorical question. Jesus, right? Jesus, okay. So uh, a, little bit, a little bit more, what's that, what's that mean? So how does Jesus make us righteous with God? Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jesus took on our sins so that we might receive uh, the righteousness of God, as Paul says in Romans. Um, and so what that means is, and what I'm going to call that throughout our night tonight is an appropriate sacrifice was made. Uh, so... To make one righteous, to have, uh, and what that means is to have right standing with God, uh, to be in right relationship with him, uh, there has to be a payment made for sins, right? And that's throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, but the difference is when we get to the New Testament, as Clancy has uh, told us, Jesus was that appropriate sacrifice. And so we'll get into that a little bit more, but uh, the point is that we too are a righteous person and because of Jesus. Uh, because there's been an appropriate sacrifice made for you and me, uh, we are also a righteous person. That's when, our, when we pray, our prayers have great power, great effect, uh, because we're in right standing with God. So uh, we receive right standing with God in the same way Elijah does. So he's a human. We pray to the same God. And we receive that right standing with God in the exact same way. So uh, James says we are exactly like Elijah. Um, so just to give a little bit of context for 1 Kings 18 tonight, uh, I think a good phrase to describe this is a battle for truth in an age that tolerates evil. Uh, and I think that's a very applicable phrase for us, uh, especially um, Cameron's hopefully got a picture of, oh, did you forget the picture? He forgot the picture, but I was going to have him 
put on the screen a coexist symbol. I know you've seen many of those bumper stickers uh, driving around, no matter what city you live in, uh, even here in Louisville. It surprised me when we moved here how many we saw, uh, actually, which just shows that uh, it's a, tolerance is a cultural uh, trend overall. Um, so a battle for truth in an age that tolerates evil, what does that mean? Uh, well, uh, for the book of Kings, we have two characters that we've got to understand, and they are Ahab and his wife Jezebel. These were wicked, wicked people. Ahab is said to be uh, worse than all the kings that have come before him. So there were a lot of kings that murdered a lot of people, and the Bible says that Ahab was worse, uh, and even worse than his father, who was supposedly worse than all the guys before him. And so this, is, this guy is the worst of the worst. The most evil supervillain you could think of has got nothing on this guy. Uh, so he is wicked and evil, and his wife is not much better. Uh, his wife is a woman that came from the north, and there they worshipped Baal, and uh, Baal was a, a huge deal to them. He is the storm god, so he's in charge of all things like uh, rain and lightning and thunder, uh, things like that. And so whenever they married, Jezebel said, uh, I'm not really feeling this whole worship the Lord your God thing and serve him only. Uh, how about we incorporate some of this Baal worship in? And with that, she decided, well, there's a bunch of guys running around proclaiming faith in this one God, and I'm just not going to tolerate that. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and have them executed because they're not going to tolerate me and I think there's a, a similar principle here to what we go through as Christians in our day and our culture, uh, because the whole thing is tolerance, right? So uh, you're to tolerate everyone and their religious views, their worldviews, anything that they believe. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's all subjective, and it's supposed to be uh, what makes you happy, what makes you feel closest to God. And uh, you're supposed to tolerate the beliefs of others because that's supposed to be what is loving. And uh, except for those intolerant people that don't tolerate you. So uh, the tolerance goes as far as someone disagreeing with you. Do you see that, how it's self-contradictory? The tolerance of our culture is self-defeating because we tolerate up until the point that someone doesn't tolerate us. Uh, And... That just isn't a good philosophy to go by because it falls through. Uh, And so I think we can identify with what's happening in Elijah's day, uh, although it's a little bit different. I think there's some similarities, and we can identify with that uh, because there's a lot of hypocrisy there. Uh, So, and I think... Overall, in Elijah's day, there's just this acidic environment for those who want to hold to faith in one God. And uh, overall, that's what we've got going on here and uh, all over the world as well. Um, And so let's just go ahead and jump in to uh, chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 17. Uh, It reads, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, 
and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Uh, so I kind of headed up this section, the troubler of Israel, because there's these two, they're accusing each other, right? Uh, so what is the trouble that both of them are speaking about? Well, it's this three-year drought that happened. Uh, so the people are devastated because they've not had water. And so the king looks at Elijah, and he's like, well, you prayed for it, and it's all your fault. And Elijah's like, okay, so basically what you're saying is that because God judged your sin, that's my deal, um, and that's not going to fly. And, and so we see that Ahab is the true troubler of Israel. He has brought this upon the people, and uh, with the worship of the Baals, they're turning away from the Lord and turning towards false gods. And Elijah uh, has prayed to the Lord for a long time, and finally uh, both him and God are just sick of it. So they're going to uh, do something about it. So Elijah goes to King Ahab, and he's like, Hey, uh, have all your prophets uh, that are telling you all these things come and meet me at Mount Carmel. Uh, and Mount Carmel would have been home court for Baal. Uh, so if you know anything about sports, you always want to have the home field advantage, right? Uh, you have your fans there. You have the uh, advantage of hearing all these people cheering for you, and your numbers are a lot better. Um, so you want the home court advantage. So the, the NBA Finals is a good example of this. Most of the time, uh, you see teams winning when they play in their city, and then it's a lot harder to win when they go on the road. And so that's why they alternate the games. They have the seven-game series to end the whole season, and they alternate the games so that it's even and fair for the teams. Well, Elijah's saying, uh, no, I'm cool with this not being a fair deal uh, because this isn't going to end well for you. And so they go to Mount Carmel, which is where (laughs) Baal, it's like, this is his front porch. And so let's continue reading. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And so what's he saying here? What's he he saying by this? Why are you limping between two opinions? Well, I think he's getting at something we're going to see later in the passage where... uh, the Baal worshippers would do this kind of dance where they kind of limped around the altar. And I don't even know what that looks like, except uh, maybe some of the younger crowd in the room knows what the stanky leg looked like. Um, you know, so it's kind of this weird dance where they go like, you know, and it's, it's just odd and it makes you look like a fool like I just did. And so I'm just kind of picturing them like doing the stanky leg around this altar or something like limping around. And my theory for why they limped around is because they would often cut themselves to appease this god of theirs. And so I think uh, it just kind of hurt, and they probably just couldn't dance very well. Uh, (laughs) I think there's probably more to it than that, but I think some of that's probably involved with the limping, because that just seems like an odd way to uh, worship a god, to limp around his altar. Uh, (laughs) But so, so so Elijah's setting up this wordplay where he's like, why, people of Israel, why are you limping between these two opinions, these two faiths? He's saying, you're being, you're, you're limping and not walking straight. You're falling back and forth between these two opinions and you don't have your head on straight. And he's like, why? How long will you continue to do this? 
Uh, he's like, make a decision. Uh, and so we'll keep reading. Uh, and so Elijah is going to just further set, set, the, set the ground rules, and he's going to make sure that there's no way that uh, they can accuse him of cheating, and he's also going to make sure that there's no way that they can, that they can be like, well, that was a fluke. Um, you know, uh, there's, he's just going to set this up to where there's no way that Baal couldn't win if he's a real God. And so he says, Then Elijah said to the people, I even only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So there's a numerical advantage. There's, it's 450 against one. Really, it's 850 against one because there were 400 other prophets that worshipped Asherah, which was kind of the, the queen goddess of the gods that these people worshipped. <coughs> so it's 850 up against one, and Elijah wants them to know that. He says, let two bulls be given to us, and then let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. So he's saying, okay, we're going to have two bulls, and you guys get the first pick. Uh, you guys can pick whichever one you want. Um, there will be no unfairness there. And, and I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I saying put no fire to it because the competition is uh, whose God is going to send down fire, right? Whose God is going to consume this offering that they're offering? And, uh, and Elijah's saying, hey, let's, let's not cheat here. Let's just make this a fair contest. Uh, so put no fire to it. And we'll see whose God responds. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So they're like, all right, that's fair. Fair deal. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or maybe he's asleep and must be awakened. Uh, so he's saying, maybe, maybe your God's just behind the bush taking a whiz real quick. Uh, just, you know, speak up a little bit. Maybe he'll hear you. Maybe he took a nap, you know. Um, I get tired, too, when I go camping and I go away for a while. So he's, <laughs> he's saying, get a little bit louder. Maybe he'll hear you. <laughs> and he's just, he's having a fun time. This, you know, I, I would think that after hours, it was about midday around this time, that I would have probably set up some rocks like a recliner and just been, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know what you do for that long. So I think mocking is uh, just a logical conclusion as you see these people doing the stanky leg around an altar. Um, you know, so... Gosh, I don't know why that's... <laughs> uh, And they cried aloud and cut themselves as after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention.
So they're doing a lot. They're making a lot of commotion. A lot of stuff is happening. They're trying to awaken this God. Uh, they actually believed that this God would typically go to sleep during the summer season. Uh, rather, he was actually dead in a way, but not really, like, gone. Uh, so I know that's kind of a confusing idea, but he would go to the underworld while Mott, the God of death, reigned over him for the summer, and there was this dry period. Well, the dry period for this guy had been lasting for about three and a half years now, so everybody's food supply had ran out, and uh, it's not looking good. And so they're crying out, and then they start to cut themselves. Um, And so I thought we would take a moment just to uh, talk about uh, self-mutilation, cutting, uh, self-harm for a moment. I know that uh, this is something that uh, most of us know someone who has uh, resulted, you know, something in their life has resulted in them cutting themselves, harming themselves. Uh, maybe, maybe it's not cutting, maybe it's they burn themselves or something like that. Um, and it may be for slightly different reasons than uh, these people were doing it then, but I think it's important to address because uh, there's studies that say that one in five adolescents uh, will do it at some point. Uh, and that's a staggering number. That, that would mean that it, even in a smaller church like ours, there is very, very likely uh, someone who has struggled with this. And so I think it's an important thing for us to consider and look at, uh, okay, what does the gospel have to say to this? How can knowing Jesus uh, help us and help us to help people who wrestle with this? Because it's a serious and real problem. Um, and so what they're doing here is they're cutting themselves to get a God to respond to them. Uh, they're saying, if I will shed my blood for this God, then he'll finally hear me and he'll finally do something about what's happening to me. And as the passage said, no one answered. No one paid attention. Uh, I used to work with a girl in Missouri at a Christian bookstore. Uh, and we'll just call her name Mary. Uh, for confidentiality's sake. But I wanted to share a little bit of her story with you guys this evening. Uh, Mary uh, is is still a fairly young person. She grew up in a home where there was divorce pretty early on. Um, The mom did not take it well at all. Uh, She had some serious mental issues after that, and that resulted in her uh, having some sort of extended stay in a mental institution. Uh, So Mary found herself in this place where she doesn't really know what home is and what this all is supposed to look like and how a family is supposed to operate, that idea has been shattered for her. And she uh, no doubt had a longing for uh, something more than that. Um, And uh, I was told that she often felt like she had to fulfill the role of a mother in her family. She had to take care of her sister And that resulted in a ton of pressure that she honestly couldn't handle at that age. And uh, so she was devastated by uh, the fact that her dad wasn't around anymore. They'd had a serious divorce and split. Her mom had some serious mental issues, couldn't take care of them uh, the way they needed to be taken care of. And so she's left kind of fending for herself with her sister and kind of trying to be the mom figure. and, And that's a lot for a young person. And she couldn't do it. Uh, so she started 
going towards drugs and alcohol, and uh, eventually she started cutting herself. Uh, some, it started out she just wanted to feel something. Uh, she wanted to get rid of the stress, and she wanted to feel something different. And so she would cut herself, and she would bleed, and it would leave scars, as many of you know that it does. And uh, it became a serious problem for her. Uh, so one day her and her sister are out on the back lawn by themselves and they've got some weed and they're going to smoke it and uh, they realize they've got nothing to smoke it with, uh, nothing to light it up with and so uh, they see this Bible just kind of laying there and her sister tears a page out of it and rolls it up so that they can snort the weed and at that moment Mary, something just just kind of struck her as, this is all wrong. You know, I've never really thought about it before, but that's God's word. And I I can't do this anymore. And so she looked for a church, and she found herself in a fairly legalistic Pentecostal church. If you don't know much about Pentecostal churches, uh, they are typically the ones who wear dresses to the floor, uh, typically have longer hair that they will keep worn up, um, and they have a lot of rules. Uh, So they'll talk about Jesus a lot, but then, and the Holy Spirit a lot, uh, but then there's this idea that I still have to do this, this, and this to keep my right standing with God. And for Mary, that just added pressure. Uh, She didn't realize it for a long time because it was a change of scenery for her. And so she stopped cutting for a little while, uh, thinking that, you know, I know Jesus now and everything's fine. And I know these people now and this is my new home. And uh, and she was fine for a while. But eventually, uh, the pressure got to her again uh, because she just went from one place where she had tons and tons of pressure and stress to another place where she had a different kind of pressure and stress placed on her, uh, where she had to do certain things, dress a certain way, uh, so that God would look on her with a kind face and that her friends and community would as well. And uh, it was too much for her. Uh, she met this Christian, Christian man, uh, air quotes, and he encouraged her to start doing heroin with him. Uh, So now she's back into drugs uh, yet again, and it becomes an addiction. And uh, then the Christian, quote-unquote, guy says, well, I'm really not feeling how you're looking with all this. And he leaves. And so she's devastated. Uh, He finds another girl to go out with uh, because Mary is in this place where she can't handle things. Uh, She's addicted to heroin. And so she starts cutting again. To, to feel something different. And, and she continues like this for a while, and uh, she gets to this point where she shows up at her friend's house late one evening and you know, kind of bangs on the door, rings the doorbell with what strength she has left, and her friend opens the door and sees blood all over her arms and her legs and uh, sees this this friend of hers, Mary, that is, just has this distraught and kind of exhausted look on her face, and 
She's about to pass out. Uh, The friend had no idea how she even got there. Uh, She was in no condition to be driving. She may have even been high at the moment. Um, But she she brings her in, and she's like, listen, I've got to take you to the hospital. You might die on my couch. I've got to take you. And, And she's like, no, you will not take me to the hospital, or you're not my friend. And so this friend is just pleading with her, and, and Mary starts crying, and she tells her friend, looking at her cuts, it's just not good enough. They're not good enough for him. And she begins to talk about God and how her cuts, though she's tried so hard, can't bring her into right relationship with him. She's tried so hard to please him, dressing the way she was supposed to dress, talking the way she was supposed to talk. She couldn't do it anymore, so she tried to cut herself to feel something again. And then in hopes that God would see that she was trying to punish herself and that God would see her pain and look on her with kindness. And she said to her friend, though her cuts were almost as deep as the bone. It's just not enough. And when I heard her story the first time, and I heard those words, I said, she's absolutely right. It's not enough. It never can be enough. Because there's nothing that you and I could ever do to bring ourselves into right relationship with God. There's nothing that you and I can do by punishing ourselves, uh, by doing the right things over and over again. It'll all fall short because we've all fallen short of the glory of God and we're in need of not shedding our own blood, but someone who would shed his blood for us. And, and so even these devastating issues uh, that are so prevalent especially in the lives of young people, but not just there. Uh, there's a gospel application. The gospel is not just for this moral transformation. Uh, the gospel is for people who are stuck in sin and suffering and who need a redeemer, someone to save them from themselves, from their sin. And, and I'm still praying for Mary that she will understand one day that uh, there's one who shed his blood for her so that she would not have to shed hers. And that's precisely the thing that the Baal prophets are not understanding here. Uh, their conception of God is that they need to cut themselves, they need to dance in a certain way around his altar so that he'll hear them and respond. And it's just not true. And it's a sad thing they've been leading others to believe this. And that's no longer a sad thing, it's a wicked thing. Uh, And so, so we see the vanity of trusting in a false God that won't hear you and that won't respond. No one answered, no one paid attention to them. So then we're going to see Elijah's appropriate sacrifice. We've just seen an inappropriate attempt at a sacrifice to please God, to make him look on you with kindness and respond to your prayers. 
And so Elijah is going to show us how to, how to do this the right way, uh, how to do this the way that God has prescribed uh, as an act of faith uh, rather than as something that he's doing in himself to achieve righteousness with God. Uh, so Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. Near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. The altar had been destroyed by uh, the false prophets. And so he brings all the people together and he's like, listen, I know you've seen this for hours. It's not been working. Would you come help me rebuild this thing for God? And so they rebuild this altar to the Lord out of devotion to him. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. So Elijah, by doing things the right way, he's reminding the people who they are. He's reminding the people of their God that's called them to be his own uh, and that has loved them and chosen them. And he's saying, listen, (laughs) we're going to build this altar to the God with these 12 stones, uh, this God that has chosen our people in love. And, And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. Uh, So that's about, a seah is about 7.3 liters. So that's a lot uh, of capacity there. That can hold a lot. And, I mean, think about a Pepsi bottle that's two liters and 14 of those. That's about how much fluid it can hold. And then he says... uh, They slice the bull up and they place it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Uh, And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And then a third time. uh, And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So this thing is uh, filled with water. uh, And if you know anything about wood that gets wet, uh, it doesn't burn very well, does it? Uh, I know me, Cameron, and Luke were outside with our wives one evening, and uh, Cameron was trying in vain to start and keep a fire with wood that had been sitting over here in the parking lot that had been rained on the past two days, and uh, so we just went without the fire, didn't we? (laughs) Oh, you got it. He got it. So this is a talented man here, my friends. Um, But in general, wood that's wet is not going to burn, right? And so Elijah's like, listen, y'all really need to see what's happening here because there's no way this is going to happen unless God is really God. And and so at the time of the offering of the oblation, uh, which I found to be just a general word for offerings, sometimes could suggest some sort of a grain offering, I believe. I didn't find a whole lot on that, uh, but just know that it's, it's an offering of some sort. And Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. So there, again, he's identifying the God he's talking to. He's saying, this is the God who has chosen our people in the past and wants to continue to love us as his people Israel. Uh, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. So Elijah's prayer is all about God and who he is, and showing who he is, and so God is going to answer. 
And he's going to answer with fire. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Uh, <laughs> and so everything is gone. The fire comes down from heaven. And what I think this fire was was probably lightning. Uh, and why do I say that? Well, because Baal was this god who was supposed to be in charge of lightning, right? So he was supposed to be able to send lightning bolts down like that. And he didn't. For hours and hours, he couldn't do it because he didn't exist. He wasn't real. And Elijah praised the real God who really has power over uh, everything in the universe. And he sends lightning from heaven like that. Like he just snapped his fingers. And it happened. And it didn't just consume the offering. It didn't just consume the bull. Uh, Everything was gone. There wasn't dust. There was nothing. Uh, The water was gone, the bull was gone, Uh, nothing has remained, Uh, and so God demonstrates his power in a glorious way. And and then we read the people's response. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And you can just imagine them falling on their faces and just pleading that God will have mercy on them because they've been worshiping false gods for three years now. And this God that just consumed everything around them with lightning uh, has revealed himself. And they're like, oh, this is serious. <laughs> and Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. When most people read verses like that, uh, they're horrified. And in a sense, we should be horrified by something like that. Uh, Lots of people just died. Uh, But just because something is horrific does not mean that it was not just. Uh, Just because something is a terrible tragedy uh, does not mean that God was not right to do it. Uh, These people had been leading his people Israel astray for years now. They had been teaching them false doctrines, false truths, uh, and uh, as you saw, they were people that mutilated themselves to try to get a, a God to respond to them. And so they were people that limped around, uh, often in pain, I would imagine. And so it's a, there's a very gruesome picture here that if, if Israel had just had not just swayed back and forth but had you know totally given themselves over to this it's it's hard to tell where they would be but it would not be a good place and God is a father who loves his children and he protects them and he will not tolerate uh, people leading them astray and leading them to their deaths and so uh, Elijah his messenger has them slaughtered and that's a humble, humbling thing to read. Uh, but in the end, we've got to trust the God who has all wisdom, uh, who in his very being is love. And I think a helpful way to look at this is uh, if, if someone that you loved and cared for uh, was, uh, and I know this is a slightly, uh, not even slightly, this is a way different thing, but it's an illustration Uh, So hopefully it'll help. Um, If someone you know and cared for was raped and brutally murdered, uh, 
what would you want the judge to do? Uh, you'd probably want the judge to give out justice. You would want the punishment uh, for this brutal, terrible crime uh, on this undeserving person uh, to, to be carried out. And God is a just judge who carries out the punishment that our sins are due. And that's a humbling thing to realize, but it's a truth that we can rejoice in because he loves his people and cares for them. But to just kind of sum up why the Lord answered Elijah but did not answer the prophets of Baal, there's two things. The Lord answers prayer because of an appropriate sacrifice, and the Lord answers because he is God. So we saw this idea of an inappropriate sacrifice where people are doing all these things to try to get this false god to respond to them, and he doesn't hear them because, one, he's not real, and two, uh, their sacrifice is inappropriate and not the way uh, that it should be. And... God responds to Elijah because his faith was in an appropriate sacrifice, a sacrifice that God uh, had said, this is the way that this is to be done. This is how atonement is to be made. And, uh, and you and I, we hope in the same thing. Uh, so Elijah may have uh, placed his, his faith in this God that was going to respond to the sacrifice of a bull, uh, but the Old Testament saints, they... They look forward to this promise of a Messiah, uh, and that Messiah is Jesus, and he is the one that uh, you and I trust in as our appropriate sacrifice, and, uh, and God responds to our prayers because of what he did on the cross, because he shed his blood for us. Uh, we don't have to shed ours. And so I think we'll just end there, and we'll pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good God and a just God and that you love us and care for us. And we thank you that you hear us. So God, would you help us to trust you even when we don't understand things? Would you help us to trust you when it seems like the enemy is winning? Would you help us to trust you to display your victory overall. And God, that we can rejoice in who you are and who your son is and what you've done for us. So it's in Jesus' name that we pray.